Hello, welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines. With the annual American Society for Virology meeting coming up in two weeks, we are talking with graduate students and postdoctoral researchers who will be attending the meeting. Um, thanks for talking with us today. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Ling. And uh, I'm currently a postdoc associate at Department of Pediatrics and Center for Vaccine Research at the University of Pittsburgh. So I did my undergraduate in China, um, came to US for graduate school and got my PhD in 2016. After graduation, I uh, did a couple of years of teaching and actually just transitioned um, back to research last year, sort of um, in the middle of the pandemic. Um, great. And so could you tell us a little bit about um, when you were younger, how did you first become interested in sort of science and then virology? Um, okay. Um, well, I wish I could have a fancy story to tell you, um, like I fell in loving virology as a child. Um, the truth is I wasn't um, exposed to virology until the last year of my high school. Um, that's when SARS hit China, um, particularly Beijing really bad. And um, that was like 20 years ago when, you know, the knowledge about emerging viruses and uh, um, the tools to study them were very limited comparing to nowadays. So SARS really posed um, great public crisis in China and um, caused a lot of fear in people, including myself. Um, and that was the year I went to college. And um, I think the SARS outbreak became part of the reason I chose biology. Um, one was because I was interested um, in biology, in science. And two, um, because I, that was the time I felt biology was really something, it's really something that um, relevant to my life and to everyone's life. And can you tell us, did you have uh, family members that were in science or are you sort of the first in your family to do science? So I was, um, I was the first generation in my family who went to college. Um, it's not like my parents um, who were not like, they were not good at studying or they didn't want to go, go to college, but the opportunities for them in their, at, at that time um, for their generation were very limited. That being said, they valued a lot about um, my education. So if there were like one thing when I was a kid that um, I can ask them to buy for me without them questioning why was books, right? Um, that's something they would be like, okay, you can, um, you can get as many books as you want with, with the money we have. So, um, but even back then, um, the resources for science books are not as many as nowadays. Like for kids nowadays, you can watch YouTube videos, you can go to museums, science camps, science toolkits, like you name it. Um, back then, I think the book I had was like, um, what's it called, like a thousand, a hundred thousand wise, sort of like a kid's um, encyclopedia book as nowadays. Um, 
And I just like kept reading it and um, find, very, find it fascinating that there are actually answers to many of the questions um, I had. So that's sort of um, how I became interested in science in early on. Um, can you tell us a little bit, so you were saying that you were doing some teaching and then you kind of got back into science. So can you tell us a little bit about that path that you followed? Like, how did you get to your postdoc lab? Why did you leave teaching? What are, what are some of the details like? Sure. Um, I sort of followed like a non-traditional way for doing science. Um, I did, so my PhD background is, was in cell biology, and my dissertation was to study um, functions of kinesine motors in cell adhesion and migration, which was pretty basic science. But I had always been interested in um, disease-related research. So during um, my last year of graduate school, I had the opportunity of um, get involved in teaching and became really um, liked it. Um, so then during my teaching years, the courses I taught were authentic research-based lab courses, which mm -hmm. used either yeast or fruit flies to, um, as model organisms to study proteins that are involved in human diseases. So, um, so there's sort of always this interest uh, or curiosity, curiosity there um, along the way. And um, so when one of my friends who work in um, my current lab like reached out to me and said, hey, we have a postdoc position opening and are you interested in working with Pharisees? I was like, yes. Um, so I did my interview with Dr. Miguel Rai, gave a talk. And because my background wasn't in um, virology, we discussed sort of what things uh, we need to do to get me trained and what skill set I can bring in as a cell biologist to study viruses. So for example, I had a lot of um, imaging experiences during my PhD and uh, that could be useful for imaging, um, for detecting like viral RNAs, proteins, how they, where they localize in an infected cells. So um, I joined in the lab since last July, so July, 2020, and have been working on projects of both Rift Valley fever virus, which is Bania virus and SARS-CoV-2. So because um, Rift Valley fever virus is select agent, so I had to also go through a lot of background check to be able to handle that virus. And both virus, um, both RBFE and SARS-CoV-2, um, we have to handle the live virus at a biosafety level three facility. So I had to go through a lot of training on that one. Um, the talk I would be giving at SV was a serum prevalence study of SARS-CoV-2 that we actually just published last month. Oh, great. So can you tell us a little bit about the experiments and some of the main findings? So, a little bit background story. Um, when COVID hit US last, um, like early spring last year, um, the Center for Vaccine Research at Pitt um, decided to team up and contribute to SARS-CoV-2's research because um, there isn't a lab in our center that actually focuses on studying coronavirus. But the leadership team actually assembled all PIs affiliated with center 
and brainstormed ideas and um, came up with several great projects that could use the current expertise um, that each lab has established over the years studying other viruses or other pathogens now into studying um, SARS-CoV-2. So when I joined in McGarrett Lab in July, um, my PI just got a funding in collaboration with two other PIs at Pitt um, to work on the serum prevalence study. So at that time, um, most population-based serum prevalence study um, of SARS-CoV-2 were carried out in um, places which are hotspots of COVID-19. So most of these places are as you know, are big cities or metropolitan areas. And much less is known about what's going on in those medium-sized cities like Pittsburgh. So we developed a serological testing strategy which used two ELISAs that um, enabled us to distinguish infected from vaccinated individuals and use it to um, estimate the serum prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 in West, uh, Western Pennsylvania at two time points. We collected a sample in the fall of 2020 and again in February of 2021. So those were the two critical time points before and after the large waves of the cases during the winter and um, also the introduction of the two EUA um, approved vaccines in last December. Um, so that, that was sort of our um, background story about the study I actually had been working on uh, since I joined in the lab. We currently have other um, SARS-CoV-2 projects going on. Um, and I also started to work on Rift Valley fever virus projects, which is quite interesting too. Oh, great. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about the Rift Valley fever virus work? So people might not be as familiar with that virus because um, it's obviously not here, but why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Rift Valley fever virus, or um, in short, RVFE, it's a mosquito-borne hemorrhage fever virus. It's mostly found in South Africa um, and the Middle East, and there had been outbreaks over the years. The disease man manifestation of RVFV in human um, are hepatitis and cephalitis. Most of the time, um, the disease is self-limiting, so people get better after certain times, but um, in certain population of people, um, they would get a really sick and a die. Um, so, our lab is really interested in studying the pathogenesis of RBFE and the host immunity in response to this virus. There are currently a couple of projects um, that's going on for, for RBFE. We're, one is we're interested in the B cell immunity to this virus. Um, if, if we're giving the mice alive attenuated strain of RVFE, um, they would expect, it's expected they're producing anti-RVFE um, antibodies. And we're asking whether these antibodies are sufficient to 
provide protection of the mice um, for future challenges in wild-type RBFE. Now, another project is um, focused on T-cell immunity. So what specific cells, T-cells, are present in the tissues that are infected by RBFE? Questions like that. Now, the project I'm working on is um, to dissect the role of cellular tropism and the viral pathogenesis. So in this one, we're using recombinant viruses that would have re restricted replication in specific cells um, and ask what would be the disease um, outcomes with this virus. So um, one thing that got me thinking um, about RBFE is like you said, there, there are not many people know about it, right? But there weren't many people who knew about SARS-CoV-2 or coronavirus before um, until it hit us. So I think it's really important to study um, these viruses before they actually pose a great um, public health um, threat to our community. And then I guess, um, can you talk a little bit about what the past year or so has been like for you um, personally? So I did my PhD at um, University of Pittsburgh. So I have been here for a while. Um, but I did switch my job from teaching to, to research um, in the middle of the pandemic. So I, I really enjoy teaching. Um, and uh, I think it was like during, um, around the time of spring break that we actually had our last in-person class. And uh, um, Back then we didn't really, I guess nobody envisioned how much of the impact this um, pandemic would have on us. Um, to me, first of all, I think as an instructor, we really have to adapt to online teaching from you know, the very um, traditional way of in-person teaching. And because we were teaching a lab course, it added extra area there, like how are you going to ever teach students something really hands-on, right? Give them hands-on experience. So um, I think that, that that was a big challenge um, for me and I'm sure for all the instructors um, around the world um, this past year. Um, getting back to research was actually easier than I expect. Um, on one hand, I was eager to meet other people. And um, going back to research was giving me the like, we were allowed to work um, because of the work we were doing. So that was one benefit. Um, I guess on the other hand, I, I felt, um, I think I really see the great importance of my work, like as a virologist, um, although I probably wouldn't call me a, call myself virologist, probably like a rising or um, aspiring virologist at this stage. Um, so I really see the great importance of what I do and um, the, how the science can really shape our combat to, you know, this, this deadly virus. Um, and not just from the virologists, but from other disciplines in biology, 
like immunologists, structure biologists, and with all these efforts, it's very impressive. Like we have vaccines within a year um, to combat SARS-CoV-2. Then the second part, I think um, I felt, or I had really thought about was how, how, it, how urgent it is to communicate the science to the public. Since I joined in the Center for Vaccine Research, um, our center did a lot of outreach and media relation things to really deliver the message to the public, what we are doing, but like who we are as scientists, as virologists, and what are our work every day. So sort of like this podcast series, right? Because um, a vaccine is no good if people don't believe in science and don't want to have it. Um, so I guess for me, I was really enthusiastic about my research. And before I was really enthusiastic about teaching the undergraduates, I still am. And I think for the future, maybe I would also like to com- contribute some of my time to sort of make the effort to communicate science to the public, which is like what I'm doing with this podcast. Yeah, yeah, very important, um, especially right now. Can you talk a little bit about, so do you have family still in China? I do. So um, my parents actually visited us in December 2019, and they were sort of stuck here the whole year, last year. They just went back home um, January, this January. So on one hand, um, it really, like, it was unexpected for them, too. Their plan was three weeks staying in the U.S. for um, then go back home, and which ended up becoming a whole year. The, but on the other hand, they actually provided great support for me um, and my family here. Um, I have a daughter who went, who goes to daycare, but the daycare was closed during the pandemic for about five months. And um, both me and her dad are working full time. So it was great to have my parents here sort of taking care of her during that time. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure a great help. And what is it like now? So now that they're back, um, what is it like to sort of have the pandemic here and then um, still going on, I guess. And then I guess China is still experiencing some outbreaks, um, you know, issues, obviously, with some like vaccination and things like that. So what is that like? So the virus hit China first um, from the timeline we know. And they were here when that happened. So when when they were about to um, so that was actually part of the reason I was um, asking them to stay a little bit longer after the plan, the three weeks for their safety concern. Um, but then the virus, like China got it contained, right? With, uh, with great challenges, um, but they managed, we managed to do it. But then it hit US and now they couldn't travel either because of that reason. So the whole year, I think, was very, like, for, for, for us, because the virus hit China first, and we were following a lot of news on that, 
it wasn't too shocking for for me, at least, that it would eventually come to U.S. And if we, if there isn't enough preparation um, from this side, then it would become, you know, um, nationwide eventually. But I guess it also it hit a lot of Americans um, or people living here unexpected because if they were not following um, the news in other places of the world. So I think China at this point, um, like here, they are we're still trying to get as many people to get vaccinated as possible um, and quickly as possible, especially because of the Delta variant um, situation now. We also have, I think we also face some resistance too, um, just like here, some people um, have concerns about the side effects and I think that's one important thing is if we wait until we're in the middle of the pandemic, we have the vaccine, then to tell people, okay, now you need to have it. It's a little bit late, right? You need to have this kind of knowledge ahead of time to be implanted to people's mind that um, this is how science is done. And we do all these tests and they are safe, they are effective instead of waiting sort of at the last moment. Yeah, so almost like training training or teaching our people sort of ahead of time to be accepting vaccines for the inevitable um, next pandemic that's going to be coming down the road. Exactly. Um, I was just talking to my PI the other day, and it's like the question wasn't whether or not there would be a next pandemic. It's like when. So before that comes, we really have to learn from this one um, and think about what to do before next one. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today. It was very interesting to hear about your research and some of your perspective. Um, we look forward to hearing your talk at ASV and um, good luck with your research. Thank you so much. It was nice meeting you. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Backright, and thanks for listening.